business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 10 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's really, really nice to be back in the air, on the air. Craig, I hope you didn't miss me too much. Um, I was overseas. I was very lucky to spend uh, two and a half weeks in Israel. Um, I was there for the Jewish holidays. And also just to observe a little bit about what's going on over there, the economy, how things are working, just to get a feel on the street. And the one word that I think can describe the feeling that I picked up from the economy in Israel is pulsating. Everywhere you turn there's cranes, everywhere you turn there's construction, everybody's busy, everybody's got a finger in different pies. Um it's a it's a hard life in the in a sense it's a six day work week. The language is important that you speak it, but there's just this constant drive, this constant innovation you know, you turn around six months ago, there was a hole in the ground. You come back and there's a multi, uh, you know, multi-story building standing there and it's full and it's occupied. And uh, that's just a, a tremendous feeling of energy that um, I, I got from there. So it was really nice to be there and it's great to be back. And uh, tomorrow is also a big day. Tomorrow is the election day. We've been talking about it for a very, very, very long time. And, um, but that's not what the topic of our discussion is today. Today, the topic of our discussion is something maybe not as positive, something that really needs to be corrected, a scenario that has historical roots. It has long-standing um, scenarios that really need to be worked on and changed. And to me, some of the scenarios were very surprising, but a lot of you might be well aware of them. But what we're talking about is the wage gap. And to put it in simple colloquial English, that a man doing a job and a lady doing the job, often the salaries are not the same. So in studio with me is Dr. Linda Mayer. Doctor or Linda, welcome to High FM. Good afternoon. Thank you. Great. Um, we're not going to go through your qualifications because you've only got 45 minutes. So we'll just... Uh, you know, uh, suffice it to say that this is something that you're really comfortable to talk about, even though unfortunately it's not a comfortable topic because it's 2019. South Africa has really grown and changed in leaps and bounds. But let's take the professional echelon, that level um, of senior management. Is there a salary difference between what a lady and what a man would earn? Well, there's an obvious distinction between professionals that are invoicing for themselves and, for example, medical doctors where there's a prescribed fee that is applied, you know, across the norm for services rendered and senior management in the workplace or managers in the workplace. There's a clear distinction across the board. So we see that from the World Economic Forum recent World Wage Gap Report that South Africa, though 19th in the world, so we're not doing too poorly, poorly, pay our females 28% less than our males. So that that's tantamount to a, a female arriving the 1st of January and you're giving her a voucher and say, well, you'll earn the same as your male counterparts on the 12th of April. So, you know, just putting it in, in a scenario format, that that is uh, what the reality is that we face. Okay. Linda, I, I know this is going to sound totally naive. You mentioned the GPA doctor. If I walk into a, a, a doctor... The gender of the doctor is irrelevant. It's the professionalism of the individual that I really come for. 
the rate that I get charged, I hope that a lady and a male, a male, a, a female and a male doctor charge, charge exactly the same. Why should it be any different when an institution that I interact with, be it a bank, be it an insurance company, be it a construction company, uh, why should a senior member of um, the management staff get paid differently because they're female? Well, the reality is that we have a deep societal and economic uh, area that we need to normalize. And when we look at the historic ratios, females only really entered the workplace in the, you know, the mid 1980s in mass. So the issue is around in the current, in today's time now, why is it that people still pay people differently? Because they get away with it. That's the simple answer. Uh, it is illegal. You have to report to the Department of Labor every year what your salary bans are and what individuals are earning. And if they come and do an audit, there are severe fines that are imposed. In small organizations, there is still a perceived value that women don't contribute as much as males in, in the workforce. And I think that's we need to be open and in our discourse about these narratives because we still expect a woman to run a household, raise the children, have a full workload, contribute to the family, and judge her in exactly the same fashion as we do her male counterpart. So, you know, there's some great things happening with companies like Discovery, for example, and Mnet, where they have childcare facilities on site. So mothers don't have to rush off, and they can contribute equally in the workplace. And I think we must also start moving away from input-driven workplaces to output. What are people actually performing? What are they contributing? So they come in with the same skill sets and the same qualification. What is it that I want people, what is the output that I want to achieve from them? And if they start delivering on that, that I see them and give them, be more flexible around time, be more flexible about the realities of what people face. Everybody is a, you know, every male is a, is a father or a brother, and you need to understand that there are other societal pressures that we need to to be cognizant of. But Linda, I suppose that's what I'm driving at. If someone's a CFO, I expect that function to be fulfilled 100% regardless of the gender. So the fact that there's a lady in that position, why is there a perception that I should, could get away with paying less? And without being demeaning or condescending or non-PC, why would a female CFO accept less than a male counterpart? Often the positions that are available, I mean, the, the job uh, span would be specified. So the job band would say it is X amount. So we see that with females, you know, we, we sometimes are our own worst enemy. You'll see it in the boardroom. Women are often the first people to attack other females. It's just a, a societal issue that, that is normalizing over time. But why would they do that? Why would they take the lower band? Because it's an entry level for them. It's often a a position higher than the one that they occupied before, and they're too grateful to take the position. So it it is a perceptual issue, but it's a reality, and I don't think we need to skirmish away from the issue that is at hand. And just as employers, I think the important thing is that as boards and directors, if you are in charge of an organization, that you ensure that these practices don't take place. Because these people are your, in your care. You're their custodian. Uh, what I'm picking up tacitly is that it almost becomes endemic. You know, this is the scenario. This is the way it works. You hear, don't rock the boat. Just keep the position. And you will, you know, you will progress through the company. Um, but let's not make this a big issue. But ultimately, it is a big issue because the performance 
um, measure is exactly the same for a male and a female. What they need to achieve is identical, and yet one's getting paid more than the other, and the other ones almost are, are told to be subservient and just be quiet and don't don't create a whole stir, and uh, we'll see about it later. It just seems almost unrealistic in 2019. It does seem unrealistic, but it is, you know, it is the reality. South Africa is, is really not doing too badly. We must also remember that the, in, in the equation that we have a million domestic workers, which are largely female, who earn the minimum wage. So that obviously drags the female equation uh, in the ratio. It affects it significantly. So I think as, as professionals, there's a, a much smaller wage gap. That exists and, but it still exists. And I think it's about the discussion that we had earlier. What people are, are producing is what they should be judged on. So now I've opened the can of worms. I've sort of hopefully clearly expressed my dissatisfaction with the scenario. Um, almost disbelief that this practice actually does, does happen. But going forward, what, 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 what we need to do is take a quick break. But when I come back, what I want to maybe do is just position the scenario Going forward, do we, do you believe that because the expectations of job outcome are identical, that this nonsense of different salaries will fall away? Let's take a quick break. I'll be back in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9. It's 20 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. In studio is Dr. Linda Mayer. Linda, we are talking about the difference of Salary between male and female, but you started talking about something before the break, and then I interrupted you. But what I wanted to know or discuss with you going forward: Do you believe that this gap will close or disappear as the workforce matures, as society normalizes in the sense that we don't really care who's in the seat as long as the job is done? So the normalization it is projected in terms of the World Economic Forum will take 108 years. So if we look at South Africa, we so see that... you are not going to see it. No, no, well, <laughs> I don't know. With medical technology, who knows? But um, so in South Africa, we have a 44% workforce ratio that is female and 32% that is in managerial positions. Globally, I think we mentioned earlier that 22% of all professionals globally are, are female. So, and if we look at the global leaders out of the 149 there are 17 females. So will things change? Yes, things will change. Uh, but it will take its time. And it's important that people that are in positions of power, that they accelerate and take these matters seriously. Because if we want equal contribution in society by all individuals, then we need to facilitate that, not become an uh, obstacle in the way of, of transforming society. Let's so take one step back. When we talk about normalizing are we talking about the wage normalization or are we talking about that ideally what we should have is a 50-50 um, male and female contribution to business? So in South Africa, the population is f uh, 52% female, right? Right. So one would think that it would be representative of the workforce. And what we're saying is that in the workforce, and this is in the formal employment, we know in the informal sector females take up a much larger sector with, you know, the the individual selling on the side of the road, little spaza shops and so forth. So in the formalized economy, what we're saying is that there must be a representation of of the gender balance of what is represented in society. 
Is that realistic, though? Because practically, even though, and I'm not talking about the ability to do the work at all, that, that would take as a given. But a lady more often has so many other roles to fulfill, the mothering role, the, the supportive role, running the house role, etc., etc. And I'm not trying to box or create stereotypes, but is it fair with even maybe cultural influences to say that there should be a representation of the population in the workforce, giving those societal issues, you know, putting them together? I think if we look, you know, this is a very complex discussion because if we look in South Africa, we know that um, one in every three children are growing up in female-headed households where there is no father present and, and they're working. So I don't think it's a simple answer. Where there is a decision by a family that a female won't work, that's a choice and that's absolutely fine. And I don't think that we that we want to micro-analyze uh, the situation because there are other broader contextual issues, be it religious, be it societal. But I think that where women choose to participate in the workforce, it must be representative. And you raise a very important point. But I think if we if we see that 44% of the workforce is indeed female and only 32% is in, in management roles because we can assume then that they are electing to to formal employment in the workplace, there is definitely a disparity. There can't just be, you know, a third of, of the management representation being female. You know, there's a big fuss made now about the new CEO of Bidvest, who's a female, um, and one of the very, very few at that level, at listed companies, at that level on the JSE. And, and I think correctly so, and I think the fact that she's a black lady really adds to impetus that it's, that it's, we're moving forward and we're driving and, 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 and people are progressing. And more than that, an individual has the ability to achieve whatever they want to achieve without being hampered by the norms that are there to hold them back. So, you know, you can really achieve whatever you want to achieve. And I think it's, that really shows that we're growing and we're maturing as a, as a society. But let's swing to the pendulum all the way to the other end because the workforce that we interact with on a daily basis is the lower end of the workforce. Your domestic workers, your cashiers, your shop workers, assistants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a difference there between salaries? There's a huge difference in salaries, and the lower down we go, the bigger dis- the disparity. So if you and I are sitting, I was in cashier 29 and you were cashier 30, doing the same shift the same day, we would earn different salaries? Well, it would depend whether you're in a unionized environment and whether there's a bargaining council that has obviously set the specific salary bands. But if we look at the male representation in the category that we call general worker, which is what the domestic worker band is in, that the females occupy that category in a much more, in a much larger percentage in, in domestic households. I mean, a million domestic workers, that's quite an economic uh, contribution. So we see, you know, from the analysis, what, what was very interesting to see is what women spend their money on and what males spend their money on. And the predominant uh, and the vast majority of a woman's money goes towards her child's education and their upbringing. So that's the number one key driver in, in their economic spend. Is that in South Africa? Well, this is globally. Globally, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we are at a little bit of a disadvantage where, where global statistics are available. But, you know, we take it for what it, what it is. It is sound empirical research that is commissioned by the World Economic Forum. And they, they fund this extensively. 
Um, just on a corollary, and someone sent through a question, if I understand it correctly, the fact that, let's say, female domestic workers can or are paid less than their male counterparts, does that preclude men from looking for those jobs um, in times gone by you might have been called a butler? Um, there, there's another term that was used in South Africa that's really just not a pleasant term, but so it, it was the equivalent of a male domestic worker. Um, are men not looking for those positions simply because why hire a male when you can take a female at a lower price? So the first answer is in South Africa we have a 27.1% unemployment declared rate. But we must remember that is the number for people actively seeking employment, right? So the structural unemployment rate sees that people under 24 in that, in the, in, in that category, between 18 and 24, almost 56% of, of them have never, ever held a job. And if we look at the... Please say that again. Sure. Between 18 and 24, 56% of individuals, youth in South Africa, have never, ever held a job. When we look at the category between 25 and 34, so South Africa has got this very strange definition of youth, which goes to 34. I don't know what you were doing at 34, but I felt pretty old. Uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't head of an SRC. <laughs> let me tell you that. So, um, so in that in that category, it's it's in the lower 40s. But we see that there's a remarkable difference from when people get uh, when they when they become completely despondent in terms of seeking employment. So, the formal unemployment rate of 27.1 percent. Please don't be guided by that. Because people are despondent, it doesn't count the people in the informal sector that are trading and little home businesses. All of those numbers are excluded from that 27.1 from the, from the un- declared unemployment rate. Linda, you've thrown me totally off topic, and I, I, I think I can throw you a curveball because I'm sure you've, you've got the experience and the, and, and the uh, qualification to handle it. But if we've got school leavers doing nothing for five years after leaving school, in other words, they're not part of the formal economy. They're not being trained. They're not being upskilled. They, they, they just almost vacant. They, they invisible. Isn't that a death blow to an economy when you've got able-bodied, able-minded people at that really important time of their life just becoming despondent? It's very important. And that's why it's so important that people study because we see if somebody as a BCom degree, for example, as a graduate, we're sitting at only an 8% unemployment rate for that category. But a lot of these people are studying qualifications where they'll never get a job with it. We see from the statistics. So their studies become an extended unemployment period for them. And they struggle to find employment. That's why learnerships and internships and all of these workplace opportunities become so critically important because nobody wants to give them an opportunity. The economy is not growing at our population growth. So it means that obviously we can't absorb the individuals that are being produced and the skills that are being produced into the workplace. But also we need to look at the at the critical skills that the Department of Labor puts out to see what skills are we actually producing and is it necessary in the economy and are we growing the economy. You can put everybody in university tomorrow. If you don't have a job for them at the end of that period or they can't start organizations where the, where the, where the economy cannot support small business development, 
It's wasted money. It's not growing the economy. It's not contributing to the skills base. So I don't know what what else you would like me to say about this, but this is the reality of of. Um, I, I tell of, you of, why. This again, having spent a, you know a bit of time now in Israel and having uh, one teenager and two young adult children and and just sitting with them and their friends and. The, the the beauty about it is that when you sit around the table and people come in, you know, different nationalities, different backgrounds, different religious standings, it's, it's a total melting pot. But what I was so encouraged by is regardless of where you came from or what your affiliation was, there was this drive and this 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 as I say, this, this pulse to get things done, to be involved, to get involved and do things. And there's so many different opportunities. And I look at these young people and I think, yes, you might not be in university like I was at your age, but you're not wasting a moment. You're contributing. You're learning a skill. You're doing something that contributes to society in general. Um, and then I come part back and I juxtapose that to what you've just said and you know, the feeling I got back um, on, on a Saturday, Saturday I, I had to walk my daughter somewhere, and I just noticed that there's a lot of people that are just sitting around, and younger people just sitting around, and we're almost laughable, and we, we look at it, that, but but maybe that's just what it is, is that there's nothing really that to, to engage them or to bring them into the economy. So... What I think is unsettling me tremendously is that it's all good and well for now. It's a problem. But that problem becomes a crisis, and that crisis becomes an epidemic as these people grow older because it just becomes systemic, and there's no way to stop it. I think the one thing we must caution ourselves about and be mindful of is not to become despondent because if we don't have hope, there's nothing we can do. So what is it that we can do as a community? And structurally, what is it that we can do to support uh, individuals and the youth for looking into their future. So, you know, at my stepson's uh, school from grade one, they have these entrepreneurial days and he made 475 rand. He's in grade one. So, you know, what is it that we're doing to change a mindset of dependency and entitlement? What is it that we speak about? You know, I, I, my other stepson, I had words with him because he plays this uh, computer games. I'm sorry, I'm old. I'm still from the solitaire generation. You're just jealous. You're not as good as him. Well, you know, <laughs> but, um, and, and his dream is to become, to become a gamer, you know, and that's the courses. He's, he's 12 years old now. And those are the courses that he's doing during the holidays, coding. And we see, uh, we, an American, a very famous American, uh, Academic came to visit uh, South Africa and walked in and the kids were very proud to say, look at the game, you know, that I'm playing. I'm doing so well. And he was at this age in America, kids are designing their own games. A lot of them are selling them online. So what is it as a society that we're looking to the future? We must know that 60 percent of the jobs that exist now will not exist in 10 years. So look into the future and be realistic about what it what skills you are wanting your kids to acquire what time you invest and what it is that you expose them to. Leonard, just to clarify, um, going forward, in my limited knowledge and understanding, that your stepson's gaming skills, coding skills, are, are going to be his passport to the future because that's the way the world's evolving to. Um, or are you saying that it's it's too narrow and it's, uh, he needs to be broadened? 
Now, I'm saying that we shouldn't be too judgmental about what the future holds because right. we don't really know. So I always ask people, what is the fourth industrial revolution? Because, you know, it's the buzzword. And very few understand what artificial intelligence is. So there's a narrow artificial intel- intelligence and a general artificial intelligence. So the narrow is what we utilize. It, it's predictive. We can see people's behavior. The general is, you know, where the computers are going to rule the world and take over our homes and our lives. But we need to start uh, just being more open-minded about if our children tell us that they want to do something different. You can already have an app now. You know that, what's it called, ABBA, the app. You can put all your medical symptoms in and it gives you a report I always take that report to my doctor. It hasn't been wrong yet. <laughs> and uh, legal advice, you know, you it's so all of these jobs that were secure in the in the past might have a very different societal application and context in the future. It's it's just really phenomenal because I'm sure in the field that you involve in education and designing courses and being involved in in making sure that you're giving courses that are relevant and and poignant to what a, a youngster is doing now. Um, it's a constant evolution. It doesn't change. I mean, Ari Katz was sitting here a few weeks ago and, um, I was totally naive. I haven't been at varsity now, maybe five or six years. And what has changed in those, that short period of time, how online studying has changed, how what we used to call correspondence studying has changed. Whereas you sort of had everything, you knew what it was, you knew when the assignments were, you knew when the exam was, and whatever's in this book is going to be questioned. That's totally, totally changed. And what's beautiful about it, beautiful about it, is it can be morphed on an ongoing basis. So it can be adapted going forward. Absolutely. So the way that people learn, we, we know a lot more now about cognitive modifiability, about the way that people learn and about predictive elements. So you know Ari. You know what the word maverick means? Yes. And Ari was the pioneer in this area, in distance learning, in what he, he used to have those Betamax tapes. I don't know if you, if you remember them. Yes. So he could see this happening 30 years ago. So we must be mindful of the evolution. And when people come forward and, and have these novel ideas, not to discard them. Uh, you know, Boston now has 47 campuses. <clears throat> it's as big as a public university. It's growing exponentially because there's a determination and drive and also because the business is, is centered in technology. Not just that the, the, the lectures are recorded, but it's got artificial intelligence that tells us when students engage with content and when they don't. So we phone them preemptively. Uh, we, we send them, uh, WhatsApps, SMSs. We call them. They interface with us with Skype, email, telephone. So you need to, you need to embrace modern technology. Otherwise you'll just be left behind and you won't capacitate people for the skill sets that they need to contribute positively to the economy. You know, one thing maybe I could just ask you, um, interesting thing, you know, as I was talking to you a little bit earlier about the, the open university in the UK, they've got no entry requirement. So long as you can pay the fee and you are within the right age, you know, they don't want a 16 year old or I think a 92 year old, but, um, there's certain requirements that you need to get in and English speaking, et cetera, et cetera. You can join. You know, you don't need to have your matric results in order to join a particular course. I think certain courses you do, but generally they're just looking for people to join. And I take it that the dropout rate is pretty high because the standard is high and the 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 work um, load is just never ending and it just rotates. But what's phenomenal is that anybody can join 
and you've just got to be part of it. But the support structures are all there. Everything's in place, but you've got to be able to engage. If you don't engage, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's where universities really evolved. There's a lot of new evolutionary things. We see in New Zealand that they have nano programs that constitute half of a qualification. So you only have to do half of the modules. I think we're moving away from the preclusion of people into studies. Because a lot of things, you know, I, I don't know how, how focused you were in, uh, in school, but it's not an indicator of how well you'll do in your further studies. Because it's not an area that was of any interest to you whatsoever. And you might have had a very bad teacher that was that you were exposed to, unfortunately. I'm, I'm sitting, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm, I'm smiling because I remember sitting in the first Boston City campus downstairs in the canteen area, whatever whatever it was, and there was a guy who was a year or two behind me in school, and he was a disaster. I mean, how he got through school, I don't know. Walked into accounts and shone and flew, and he was walking around. He was almost like the unofficial tutor, helping guys. And I think like, and when I went over to him, I said, like, Wave, how have you found this? He said, this is what I'm passionate about. This is easy for me. Mm. School was just so dead boring. Absolutely. I, and that was in the early 90s. I was already on my second degree, and I was thinking, you can't do that. You know, you've got to engage, and you've got to uh, absorb, and you've, everything's done. And his whole idea was, no, I'll do what I'm passionate about, and I'll do what I'm good at. And uh, there was also this this notion that, Accounts and auditing, we're going to do well at. Those other subjects that you need to make you do in order just to beef up, the, we'll just pass them. And and that was a different way of thinking because all the way through school you were taught, make sure you do well in everything. But I see you smiling. What's your mm. comment on that? My comment is that if you don't have a passion, you won't put the energy into anything to succeed. So doing well and testing yourself is great, but don't discard people because they might have – just been a little wayward whilst they were in school. Give them an opportunity. We, our, our motto is we, we put you on a path. We put you on a skills program, put you on a higher uh, certificate, uh, diploma, and we'll get you into a degree in a postgraduate qualification. We'll take that opportunity and we'll invest. But we don't want people to study things that they're not interested in. Go and do a MOOC. You know, these massive online open courses mm. through all the top universities in the world, these four to six week courses. They cost you nothing. And unless you want a certification from them, go and explore the areas and then commit to a qualification that you want to complete. And uh, Craig's getting a bit upset with us. We're a minute over time. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 18 minutes to 1 o'clock. Thank you, Summer, for, for joining us. If you've just joined us, we are in the studio with Dr. Linda Mayer from Boston City Campus. And we are talking originally about the wage gap between males and females, and that has really just taken us on a total different trajectory, all about, I suppose, education and the employability of people going forward. Um, Linda, just before we get back on, on, on track, I often feel that the best discussions, the most insightful ones that happen bet- quickly between the breaks. In South Africa, you mentioned that there's a there, – we have a sense of entitlement and there's an, that comes through in different areas. How does it work – in education, and, and maybe let me just frame it. I don't know that every qualification that I got post school was earned with sweat and blood. Um, passing wasn't a given. Rewriting was almost a guaranteed. Um, how we found the money was another story. But the goal was in sight, and that's what you kept your focus on. And no matter how long it took you, you got there. But no one gave us anything. 
But yet I say that from a point of privilege. Because regardless of whether it was easy or not to get my degree um, financially, I still came from a point of privilege. What, what's the general milieu in South Africa at the moment? So the point of privilege, I think, uh, as a society when we reflect, is around respect. And we see this from our crime statistics, obviously, whether whether we respect each other or we don't, whether we take for granted that we can just take what it is that we want. So for me at Boston City Campus, the issue for me is we most ha- we mostly have first-generation students that come from domestic workers and gardeners, and those students study themselves to death. You can't believe the effort that they that they put into it. I've also worked in public institutions and... My, in my experience, you know, there's a very different co- level of commitment to people that are studying to better the lives of their entire families. It's the family's entire life savings as, as first generation students and people that just get a handout. People that just say, well, come and study for free. That's okay. It's your right. It's your entitlement. Come and do this thing. Because there's the level of commitment and the, and the level of responsibility. I think for me, what I've experienced over the years is that there's been a devaluation of accountability that, you know, things are easier. We let our children get away with a lot more. We let our society get away with a lot more. So I think it's a deep philosophical um, discussion about where we are in humanity and what it is that we want. But people that are committed, people that are studying something that they're interested in definitely have in my almost 30 years of experience, uh, a very, very deep level of commitment to achievement. Let's stay on the positive um, note. And at the end of the day, as you said, Boston is growing exponentially. And since I've known it from day one, um, it's always grown exponentially, which just means that there's a need and a demand. The fact that you're supplying a superior product and you Tacking or you, you do, do honing into what the market needs is the genius that comes with the management team. But the demand is there and you're just supplying the demand and, and fulfilling the need. Going forward in 10 years time, do you still think you'll be offering the majority of courses you're offering today or will that have evolved? So I think the, the important thing for us is we also look within our global context. I don't know if you're aware, but we accredited with the British Accreditation Council, one of only two institutions in South Africa to be accredited. We also are on the global uh, network partnership, which means that our students can go and study anywhere in the world, 160 universities. Um, They have access to anything from medicine to uh, whatever it is that they want to study. And I think that if you've met Ari and you're talking about uh, stagnation or keeping things in the same sentence, um, yeah, I'm not going to, to elaborate on that uh, too much. But we, our, our drive is always about researching what it is that we're going to offer and making sure that we get the best possible experts, not only academically. You know, I speak about being an academic as someone that knows everything about something but has never done it. And that's not helpful in the workplace. So we need to be functioning academics. We need to make sure that we take our, our skills and our job areas very seriously, that we practice it, and that we take time to go and practice again in, and come back and contribute to what is it that qualifications require. I did some qualifications, you know, that never mind the curriculum and the syllabus being in a, the same, the jokes are still the same that my father <laughs> told back then. So 
we need to we need to lead. We need to be cutting edge, and we need to make sure that what we produce that there is a responsibility. Do you know that we have a graduate guarantee? We guarantee our jo- our, our graduates that they'll get a job if they've done a three year or more qualification. I, I think I maybe did mention it when he was on the show a few weeks ago, but that almost sounds too good to be true. We stand by what we produce, and I think regardless of the mark, regardless of the mark, we stand by what it is that we produce. Linda. On that note, when we're really out of time, but the messages coming through, I think two or three have already come through. Parents and young, young students or young, um, what they still call schoolgoers want to know, where do they get themselves assessed as to work out where they are best suited to study and to work? So all Boston City Campus, uh, this is anywhere, Rosebank, Orange Grove, uh, wherever you want to go, Santon. It's a free career assessment. Go there. It doesn't matter if you're in grade 6 or grade 8 or grade 10 or, or if you're 80 years old okay. and you want to change your career. You still have the energy to do that. Please come and do the career assessment. You're also welcome to my offices in Orange Grove to bring your child to come and have a career counseling session anytime. Please just schedule. My email address is linda, L-I-N-D-A, dot mayer, M-E-Y-E-R, at boston.co.za. And please, we, we're here to guide and to give back to the community and the society that, that is given to us. Um, I'm sure you've done this before and you've offered this before, but to those listening, um, you know, Linda May sits here very humbly and, and, and speaks very fluidly. The, the amount of qualification and experience and knowledge that this lady has and the time has just been offered free. Um, if you had to go to a psychologist or psychiatrist and have this assessments done, your medical aid, I doubt, would cover the full fee. So here's an offer made publicly on radio. If your child or yourself is looking for guidance, why are you walking around in the dark when you've just had an offer that is there? All you need to do is email, schedule the time. I don't think we're guaranteeing you'll get an appointment tomorrow morning. But within a reasonable period of time, and do yourself a favor. There's nothing worse than walking around, walking into walls because you don't know where you're going. If someone can help you and guide you, and often it might not be kind, it might not be what you want to hear, then take up the opportunity. Linda, that's that's incredibly generous, and I think maybe that's the backbone of what Boston's really built on is by giving, by helping society, it comes back because that's the the the, the energy that is given off. Without a doubt. Fantastic. Thank um, you. Linda, just to give out your address again, it's Linda, L-I-N-D-A dot Mayer, that's M-E-Y-E-R, at boston.co.za. Please be in touch. Craig, thanks so much for pushing the buttons. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.